Hello and welcome to another episode of October Surprise, a podcast created for citizens by citizens in Pennsylvania's new 16th Congressional District. I'm Jim Roddy, a lifelong resident of Northwest Pennsylvania and your host for today's podcast. Before I give a little bit of background on the October Surprise, I just want to say thank you so much for the encouragement and the feedback that we've been receiving, uh, either directly has come into me or through social media. It's kind of fun to log on to Facebook and uh, see a whole bunch of uh, people who I don't even know, I've never met before, who are starting to like and follow the podcast and then leaving comments as well. So thank you so much for that. We, we really appreciate that. For those of you who aren't familiar with the October Surprise podcast, uh, we feature a series of interviews designed to educate listeners in Erie, Crawford, Mercer, Lawrence, and Butler counties on key issues that face both our district and our two congressional candidates, incumbent Mike Kelly and challenger Ron DiNicola. On each podcast, we also discuss ethical leadership, which unfortunately is in rare supply in Washington, D.C. in 2018. We'll do a lot of talking today and throughout the month of October on this podcast, but our ultimate goal is action. For democracy to work, you have to participate. We can't be bystanders. So at a minimum, that means being an informed voter. You can help by sharing episodes of October Surprise with your family and one or two friends, on-the-fence voters, people who typically don't vote in midterms who live in our district. The ultimate action is to vote on Election Day. Let's surprise the special interest groups, the political action committees, and the big money when we take back our district on Tuesday, November 6th, and once again, put people first. Finally, I'm not a political veteran or a campaign strategist, so I don't have all the answers. But together, we're going to learn what's happening in our district by talking with elected officials, grassroots leaders, and extraordinary citizens from PA16 in each episode. All right, our special guest today is Diane Seifert. She's a Mercer County native and current resident of Hermitage. Uh, she's very active in the community there. She is a member of the West Middlesex VFW Ladies Auxiliary. She volunteers for the Water Fire Sharon event. Uh, she's also a member of the Shenango River Watchers, a nonprofit environmental group in Mercer County. She's also active in the Democratic uh, Party there. She was elected to the State Democratic Committee in May of this year. She's also a member of the Executive Board of the Democratic Women of Mercer County. Diane, thanks for your time today. Welcome to October Surprise. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Uh, so we want to focus on two issues for this conversation today, two issues that you're very passionate about, women's issues and LGBTQ issues as well. But first I want to talk about one of your uh, unpaid volunteer activities that I didn't mention. So as a lot of folks in our area now know, our current congressional representative, Mike Kelly, only holds tele-town halls now where folks call in. He doesn't have open to the public in-person uh, town halls. And according to the Erie Reader, he has a quote, he says it's the easiest and safest way because he wants people to have a cup of coffee and a clean restroom uh, nearby. But back when Mike Kelly hosted town halls that were open to the public, you attended many of them, if not all of them, and you have some insights and interesting stories to share. So let's start there. What are some of the things that you experienced uh, when you attended town halls uh, led by Mike Kelly? Sure, thank you. Yeah, and I actually went to every uh, every town hall he had, um, but that only took about a year because he stopped having them in 2011. That was his last town hall. So there were some that really stood out as far as things that happened kind of behind the scenes that people might not have realized. One of them was uh, Meadville. 
He had a town hall there, and at that town hall, he had advised that everybody had to write their question down on a piece of paper, and then they would just randomly draw from the basket questions and ask that of the audience. Sounds okay. However, I happened to have walked behind the stage to go to the restroom, and I noticed his main staff member with that same basket of questions. Nobody was around, and he was going through reading the questions, taking out questions that would not be that he did not want read, and throwing them away. So he had pre-screened this basket of questions. So when it came up on the stage, those questions that they did not want Mr. Kelly to have to answer, they were already thrown out of the basket. Hmm. At another um, one, Teal College, the town hall there, he right out of the gate asked a particular gentleman a question, you know, pointed to a gentleman, said, do you have a question for me today? And the gentleman stood up. And the gentleman didn't have a question, but he spent the next five minutes with accolades of how, what a wonderful job Mr. Kelly's doing, how great of a congressman he is, and went on and on. I recognized that gentleman because I go to every town hall, and I recognize him from all the other town halls. So I knew that he was a regular at them. And it was interesting because what uh, Mike Kelly was doing was not looking at that gentleman who was giving him all the accolades. He was looking at the rest of the audience, and it gave him an idea of where his pockets of supporters were in the room and those that weren't, so he knew who to ask questions to. So it helped him gauge the room before truly getting started. And it was just it's no coincidence that the very first person he calls on at, quote, random happened to be a supporter that was going to spend the next five minutes giving rave reviews about him. Didn't even have a question. Um, and then one other one that this was one of my favorites was Sharpsville. Um, uh, at the Sharpsville one, he was asking questions, and somebody had asked him, why did you run? Why did you become a congressman? Well, he has one of these stories. It's very Norman Rockwell-like, where he describes what it was like as far as his business. And it was a story I'd heard over and over and over again. He says the same story every time about his business and how hard he worked, even though it was inherited. But anyway, when he was starting to say this, I thought, oh, I have to listen to this story again. Now, I was alone. I wasn't with anybody, and I wasn't talking to anybody, but I rolled my eyes thinking, oh, I have to hear this story again. He happened to be looking at me at the moment I was rolling my eyes and yelled at me. He forgot that he was in a room full of people, pointed to me, yelled at me, and said, don't you ever roll your eyes at me again. He no more got those words out and realized where he was, and everybody was staring at him because nobody saw me. Nobody really knew what I was doing because I, I was right. silent. I was just rolling my eyes. But, yep, so those are a couple, some of the activities that had happened at these uh, town halls that were kind of behind the scenes, that, which made it really interesting. Uh, I did go to all of them. Hmm. He did switch to the Telly Town Hall. Uh, I've attended, um, I believe, all of those. Um, one of them, I decided because it just felt like his talk time varied if it was a Republican-leaning question or a Democratic-leaning question. So I decided to take one of those tele town halls, and all I was going to do was time it. I was going to time every single person that asked a question. From the minute the person started to ask the question to where he ended it, what was that talk time? And I did that. So if it was a Republican-leaning question, his talk time was approximately nine minutes from the beginning to the end. If it was a Democratic-leaning question, his talk time was approximately three minutes. So nine minutes if it was Republican-leaning, it was good he got into conversation. Three minutes if it was a Democratic-leaning question. I did bring that, those statistics uh, of that, and I, was, I documented that very well. I did bring it to his main staff, Chief of Staff, uh, Tim Butler. Um, he just said it was all coincidental. There was 
nothing intended with that, that that was all pure coincidence. I then asked Tim Butler, I said, you take a survey at the end of those calls. You ask a survey question and you do that, or in the middle you take a survey. Why don't you take one of those surveys and make it and ask people what their opinion is of having a tele-town hall, or would they prefer to have an in-person town hall? If you, I said, if you feel so strongly that this is the best thing possible for us, that this is the perfect way to get the message out, then you should feel comfortable asking that survey question because mm -hmm. then you, you would get back the survey results that you anticipate. Uh, he has refused. I have asked that for more than a year now to have him take one of his survey questions and simply ask that, and they have declined and will not ask that audience if this is what they prefer. It, it seems like, Dan, you know, we all expect a, a level of spin and marketing in politics. Like, there's no one running for elected office who says, like, flat out, let me tell you about my weaknesses. Or, you know, there's always some sort of spin or if, tell me about a weakness. I work too hard. I care too much. But there's a, there's spin. But I, I'm just, I, you know, I'm going back and forth in my head between it sounds like these town halls are, it sounds like more of a, uh, you know, when a faith healer comes to town and sets up a circus tent and, you know, calls on the first person that I'm going to heal and it's somebody who travels with them all the time that he uh, heals that person. It's either somewhere like that or like the Wizard of Oz where it's pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know, as the wizard is, is pulling all the strings there. I, I guess is that one of the biggest problems you have with it is in terms of uh, town halls are supposed to be open to the public to get legitimate feedback and listen to them, but it sounds like these are more, from your perspective, staged events, like they're more of a big marketing thing uh, other than anything else. Is that part of the reason why it ticks you off? Yeah, and he did move that he did change his marketing. He took his in-person type little things, that, tricks that he was doing, and he just moved it to the telephone. You know, when I, when that realization, and I really didn't realize the talk time was so different. It was three times as long if you have a Republican-leaning question. And just so you know, I personally have never been allowed to ask a question. I'm on that town hall. I'm probably one of the very first people that um, clicks into it. However, they know my voice. So they've never allowed me to personally ask a question. Hmm. I've tried changing my name. I've tried using other things, but they know my voice too well, uh, the people on there. So I personally, and I get call, every time I do get picked up, you know, for my question, because I'm right there, I've never got picked up for it. So, yeah, it is a marketing. Oh. And when we're talking about um, marketing or telling people what they think they, you know, they want to hear. Yeah. Um, September 22nd, 2010, just before the election, Mike Kelly writes, with, if you want to call it a contract, because he signed it, and it was his personal pledge to the 3rd Congressional District. I still have one of these documents. And it was a document he signed and wrote to the people and said, and he posted this out on his website and said, I personally pledge to you, and I'm signing this, and I'm committing to you that if you will elect me. And he had 10 items on there. Number 10, hold regular town halls. He signed that. That that happened for one year because in 2011 he stopped doing them. So he signed it in 2010, stopped it in 2011. Didn't go very long. I've gone back to him with this personal contract that he signed and pretty much no response to it. Things have changed, they've said. I don't know. Uh, if you sign something, you commit to it. There wasn't an expiration date on this. I would have expected you, you should stick to what you wrote and signed. Right, as opposed to changing the definition of town halls to let's, let's do it over the phone. Yep. Yeah.
Well, well, thank you for that. Again, you know, we want to dive into the issues of the campaign, but to me, that is an issue. Like, uh, to be an ethical leader, to be a good leader, you need to legitimately open yourself up and listen to the people. And if you don't want to do that part of the job, don't go and change the job, then just, just don't have the job. You should be able to, in the United States of America, sit down or stand up with your constituents and just hear what they have to say, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah, he's supposed to be a representative, not a ruler. And he's become a ruler of us because he doesn't want to meet with us. Yeah, all right. Well, thank you for sharing that info. I just I wanted to uh, to get, hear some sure. of those those stories from you. So let's talk about, um, you know, the issues that I brought up earlier. And I'd say one of the joys that I've had hosting this podcast is learning through the perspectives of others who have much different life experiences from me. So um, that's to state the obvious. I'm a man. You're a woman. Let's talk about women's issues. So I haven't walked uh, one step, let alone a mile, in any woman's shoes. What are some of the key issues? that you're hearing from women in our community, and then what should our next congressional representative do to address those challenges? What are the biggest things facing women in PA-16 that you're hearing, Diane? Well, with um, women as far as fund, well, we can just start out with funding of Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Kelly voted to defund Planned Parenthood. I mean, that is a very important service that we have. And what was really interesting on one of his votes, it was, um, I think, in 2011, the exact same day that he voted to defund Planned Parenthood, he voted to continue the federal funding of NASCAR sponsorship. NASCAR. So it occurred on the exact same day. So we can see where his priorities are, and it certainly is not with women when he voted to defund Planned Parenthood, but same day turned around and voted, let's continue our sponsorship of NASCAR. And I'm not talking small dollars. In 2012, that was over $80 million. Oh, man. Uh, so, so, so talk about Planned Parenthood. So Planned Parenthood, you know, gets, uh, you know, whittled down to a sound bite and people talk about the abortion services. But what does Planned Parenthood do for women of, uh, of our communities? Uh, yeah, and, and, and those type of services are very small. What, and they actually provide services for men. It's not just women. It's men also have services at Planned Parenthood. But that, for a lot of women, that is their only place to go for just health care, for regular checkups, for assistance with that. Uh, that is their only option. So it does get labeled as just abortion, but that is only a small percentage of what Planned Parenthood um, does. I used it when I was younger. Hmm. That was a place I went to, and I have many friends that went there, and that was the place you, you go. That's where you start out. It's affordable. You can go there. They'll help anybody out. But it's way beyond abortions. It's also health care, mammograms, uh, just child, a lot of other things besides that. And typically it serves middle class, lower income uh, uh, younger women, is that correct? Yep, it does. Okay. All right, so Planned Parenthood is one. What are some other, uh, you know, big challenges, uh, women's issues that, you, that you're hearing, that you're experiencing? Well, the other one, again, with Mike Kelly, and he was pretty well known for this comment, and this, uh, and actually this is kind of appropriate right now since we just had 9-11. That was when, uh, during the Obama administration that uh, health insurers were to provide contraceptive care with no co-pair when that went into effect, and that was in uh, 2012. He came out and said on that day, he goes, this day will go down in our history, and this day is akin to 9-11 and the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. So he related and said that we should mark that day, the day that contraceptive care 
was going to be mandated and free to people, to women, they could have it. That day was equal in, in his eyes to 9-11, and it was equal in his eyes to Pearl Harbor. Uh, the, to even say that was just incredible, and I think uh, I remember the day he did that. And it was just incredible, the news following him, of how could you even say that. And it just gives perspective into how he views women and our needs when you relate it to that. Yeah, that uh, that certainly does uh, seem extreme. And is there a thing, I guess one thing that, um, I, you know, I've heard, again, it's not because I've experienced it firsthand, but a lot of times the uh, women are prescribed, uh, you know, what we call birth control pills, but because of the side effects of them. And so those birth control pills aren't necessarily only used for birth control. They're used for other things as well, just general health. And so cutting off women from those services makes, you know, limits their health care choices and makes them suffer through some pain uh, that they might not have otherwise. Do I, am I understanding that uh, correctly? Comple yep, completely correct. So in many women, the birth control is not used as contraceptive. It is used as a medication for other issues that they have. So it's not contraceptive at all, but it is medical, and that's that is what they use. Got it. Okay. So we talked yep. about uh, we've talked about women's health care, and oftentimes people talk about women's health care, and they mean abortion, but they really don't want to say abortion. But I, I don't mind, uh, you know, not dancing around the issue when we talk about that. And so, like many people in our area, I'm. Catholic. Also, I attended a small uh, Christian school uh, here in Erie, um, and many people in those two communities, even though one's a group of Catholics, one's Baptist, they disagree on a lot of things, but they will always, always, always vote pro-life, no matter what, even if the person's running for, you know, city treasurer or something like that. So let me ask you, why are you pro-choice? And then also, people don't ask this question, if uh, abortion was made illegal, what would America look like? What would PA-16 look like? So I guess if you can explain your uh, views, your stance on pro-choice, and then what would the world look like if uh, if abortion was illegal? Well, I'm pro-choice because I think it's the woman's decision. Uh, she knows best what's best for her body and what, you know, it should be her choice. It shouldn't be somebody else coming in and telling that woman because that's the rest of your life. And so the woman should always be able to make the decision related to her body and what she's going to do. So I've always been pro-choice. And as far as if it was uh, made, quote, illegal, then it, you can make anything illegal, but people are going to find a way around it. And it may not be the safest way. And we won't be the safest way. And so now we're going to see as far as uh, definitely women being uh, could die from um, abortions where they're just getting in the back room type abortion type thing. It's not going to go away. It's just going to become unsafe for women. And we're going to see a lot more uh, tragedy related to it. Just like uh, drinking and driving is illegal, people mm -hmm. still do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So it will still happen, but it will be unsafe. Yeah, and one thing that I've read up on this, there's a book called Everybody Lies, and it's all about how, you know, how when people do anonymous online searches, like that tells you really what's going on in their lives or what they're interested in. And uh, in areas of the United States where they're the most restrictive abortion care or most limited abortion care, those have by far and away the highest searches for self-induced abortions, which cause, you know, obviously all sorts of uh, issues because you shouldn't be doing it that way. That seems like that could be one of the, the side effects of it is women who can't afford 
uh, to get the health care to get an abortion, they're going to be the ones who are going, you know, to harm themselves. But the reality is somebody who's got the money is going to be able to figure out how to do this just behind closed doors. That, that's some of the things that I've read on it. I guess, do you share that, that view at all? I do. And the woman who... Um Maybe this isn't the right time, or for whatever reason they they're not they're not, they want that abortion. But down the road they may want children. They may do something right now that harms themselves, that they may never be able to have children down the road when it is the right time for them. So yeah, I agree. There needs we need to keep it legal and provide safe places for women if they should need that and choose that. Yeah, let me ask you. This is almost like a personal thing for me. Like I'm even uncomfortable asking this question. You know, like I'm saying, I feel like I could run to my old schoolmates and they're like, how can you not be, you know, stomping your feet and saying abortion, you know, uh, has to be illegal? I guess how how do you have a comfort level with it? Is it just because of, you know, that you understand that women should have a choice and it should be between them and their doctor and the government shouldn't be interfering with it? I, I guess it's almost like I want to just throw out personally, like, I'm uncomfortable talking about this. Um, how have you become comfortable uh, with this issue? Uh, it, it, for me, just being raised that way, that it's the woman's choice. Yeah. So it goes, I was raised that way. The woman makes the decision. Got it. All right. Yeah, tough topic, and like I said, a lot of people uh, dance around it. So um, let's tie together economics and women's rights and talk about the gender pay gap. So um, studies say women make between 77 and 82 cents for every dollar that a man makes. I'm, I'm actually reading Sheryl Sandberg's book, uh, Lean In, uh, right now that talks about women in the workplace. But when legislation related to the gender pay gap uh, has been brought to the House floor, Mike Kelly has opposed it. For example, the Paycheck Fairness Act was designed to strengthen the penalties courts can impose for pay discrimination, and it also forbids retaliation against workers that inquire or disclose information about employers' wage practices. So it seems like common sense, but Mike Kelly thought that that was a bad idea. So I guess my general question for you, Diane, is like, how can it be 2018 and we're still discussing pay inequality for women? How is that possible? Well, we're discussing it um, because Mike Kelly is the topic here, and Mike Kelly doesn't view women as being equal. He doesn't. When you look at the way he votes on various things and just the various things that he, um, how he speaks about him. In fact, my personal, how I envisioned Mike and what I had done in the past a couple different times was I personally, um, at one of the protests in front of his office in Butler, I dressed up as a pregnant woman barefoot, and I had uh, duct tape over my mouth, and the sign I carried said, I am Mike Kelly's ideal woman, barefoot, pregnant, and silent. And I stood in front of his office for hours and hours, many a days um, but with that, because that's what, how Mike Kelly sees women. That's women's role in Mike Kelly's eyes, barefoot, pregnant, and silent. And that's how he just views us. So I'm not surprised when he voted against that, because he doesn't view women as equals at all. Yeah, and so you have that stance based on his voting pattern, his behavior pattern. Is that what you're, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, especially things that he votes on when it comes to women. I mean, even the, um, in addition to the one you mentioned, the Violence Against Women Act, uh, he voted against that one. And that one had been longstanding, and he voted against that act. And that does a lot of things as far as protecting women and violence against them. He voted against it. And he said the reason he voted against it, the main reason was because of the updated version of it. It extended its protection to include lesbian, gays, immigrants, and Native Americans. And he felt that we didn't need to call, that they didn't need to be called out um, as special identified groups within that, but they did. 
And so because they, those were specifically listed out, he would not support the Violence Against Women Act, that bill. He, he wouldn't support it. Wow. That's... Um... That, you know, because when I first hear the story about you getting dressed up and you know doing the barefoot and pregnant thing, it's like, wow, that's extreme. And then you hear what you're proposing, what you're opposing, and you just realize how much more extreme and and how damaging uh, that would be. That's it's almost uh, unbelievable. But it happened. I mean, it's part of the voting record. But yeah. He also voted against, there was an amendment, um, and this one was pretty recent, I think it was in 2016, there was an amendment that would prohibit uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender, and it was government spending. So in other words, if a government was hiring a contractor, and they were going to pay a contractor, but that contractor discriminated based on gender identity, then the government wouldn't hire that contractor. It would prevent that. We were not, in other words, we're not going to give money to a contractor if that contractor is discriminating. That was the bill. He voted against that. He said, no, we should go ahead and we should hire that vendor, that contractor, despite that. So he voted against that. And that was recently in 2016 when he um, did that vote. And I'll share this with people. So uh, six years ago, and this is a related story. This isn't just me going off on a tangent. But six years ago, I published a book on hiring best practices, and I did some speaking appearances here locally. Somebody invited me to a club, and it was a lot of retired uh, executives. And so I went through, you know, kind of the themes of the book. And then when I opened up for questions, one of the it was all men. Um, one of the uh, gentlemen raised his hand and said, "So tell me what." questions do you ask to find out if the woman is going, you know, to keep the woman out because you know she's going to have a baby so you don't end up hiring her? What questions did you add? Do you ask? And I looked at him and I said, why well, don't I ask those questions? Those are illegal. And he's like, come on, we all know. Like, what do you do even though it is illegal? I'm like, no, like, you shouldn't be doing that. Like, oh, my goodness. I mean, and he was comfortable asking that question in an open environment because it was just, you know, a, a good old boys club. So for folks who think, no, that stuff doesn't happen, those are extreme stories, it happens. Um, it, it definitely happens. There are folks who, uh, you know, who, who do that, and they're running these businesses and making the hiring decisions. So, yeah, it's, it's a real thing. Let's talk about the, the second subject we want to talk about, LGBTQ uh, issues uh, in uh, PA-16. So first, can you define for us, Diane, um, LGBTQ, uh, talk about that in general. What is that, and then um, what is your involvement uh, in that community? Sure. I'm lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and uh, queer. So it's a big acronym. Okay. It's easier to say than all the letters. So, yeah. And my involvement uh, probably goes back to high school, just close friends that I've had that are gay or lesbian. And I'm in my closest, closest circle of friends, they are lesbian and gay. So I've just grown up, and that's always been in my circle of friends. So I definitely have stood very staunchly as far as supporting them um, as being my friends and standing and supporting that community. And do you think a big issue is, like, you're comfortable because – you know these, you know LGBTQ people as human beings, as individuals, as opposed to this collective group that it seems like a lot of folks try to divide uh, everybody in. It's almost like when you get to know somebody who's different from you, you end up realizing that they are more similar to you. Is that something that you that you kind of see as uh, as one of the hurdles that we need to overcome in our community? 
Yeah, like I don't even think of them as lesbian gay. Like that doesn't pop into my head. They're my friends. That's it's just they're my friends, just like any of my other friends. So I don't even look at them like that. I see beyond that. I don't even think that. Right, you see them as people as opposed to like tell me like yeah, don't even don't even start there. So tell me about the yeah, challenges yeah. that uh, that the LGBTQ community faces in in PA sixteen. Well. Um, so some of the things with Mike Kelly uh, and how he views them, I had questioned him when they were when the Trump was going to put the ban on transgender Americans enlisting in the military. He wrote me back a letter, one of his template letters. All in, although in this one I was very surprised and shocked. I did call him on it, and I was not happy with what he wrote in there. But he referenced that transgenders in the military um, is he considered social experimentation. And, and said in the letter, the military is there to protect our country and is not there for social experimentation. And that was his, quote, his words in relationship to transgenders and how he viewed them as a social experimentation. That one really got me going. I definitely made a lot of phone calls on that one. I wasn't happy when he referred to them that way. Um, He's also, he's come out, he's very close with the Christian Coalition, and he supports an amendment to prevent same-sex marriage. He also co-sponsored a bill where he wanted states to define the marriage, what marriage is, and not at the federal level, because then he felt that he could influence at a state level to stop same-sex marriage. Yeah, um, like you said, how he asked a question about women in uh pay and being unequal in 2018, how can we be having this conversation in 2018 uh, as well? It seems like we've, we've gone, you know, we've, we should be further along uh, in that standpoint. So what, so if Mike Kelly's not going to do it, I mean, I know you're supporting Ron DiNicola, what would you hope Ron uh, DiNicola as our next congressional representative would do uh, related to LGBTQ uh, issues? Well, um, definitely continue to support same-sex marriage. I mean, I'm, I'm glad it's law. I'm glad we have it. Um, I'm excited. Uh, actually, our, our hopefully our new lieutenant governor, uh, John Fetterman, uh, conducted the first same-sex marriage in our state. So with him and Wolf and Dina Cola, we have quite the little team there that definitely will support that. I mean, that's step one. That's just basic human rights of recognizing them and have allowing for same-sex marriage. So I would like to see us continue the path we're on with that. Yeah, and it seems like there are parts where there are there's legislation to pass, and there are just some legislation to not pass, like to not, uh, you know, treat LGBTQ people um, as second-class citizens and not put any, you know, obstacles or hurdles in their way. Is that kind of, you know, part of the issue as well, is don't, don't, don't give them uh, any more obstacles than, you know, some of society gives them already? Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially like if they want to adopt children, allow them to adopt children. It really gets me going when um, people will say, well, they shouldn't be allowed to adopt children. Well, then when I look at a, a straight, a traditional married couple, I see many of them that shouldn't have any children. That just because you're traditional straight doesn't mean that you would become the perfect parent. I think you know you need to give everybody the chance to be that parent. And I know that's definitely has been an obstacle for the gay community to be able to adopt children or have children. Yeah, yeah. And treat people as people. Treat them as individuals as opposed to some collective stereotype. Yep. Got it.
Well, great. Well, Diane, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for sharing uh, these insights. And uh, I really appreciate your volunteer spirit and that you've been tracking uh, our congressional representative so closely. It seems like the more data that we get on our congressional representatives, the more, you know, an informed voter we're going to be, and we'll make better decisions that way. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So our podcast is over, but there's still more that we need to do. As we talked about at the start, for democracy to work, we can't be bystanders. We have to participate. You can help by sharing this episode with your family and at least one or two on-the-fence voters who live in our district, and then by voting on Election Day. Let's surprise the special interest groups, the political action committees, and the big money when we take back our district on Tuesday, November 6th, and once again, put people first. I'm Jim Roddy. Thanks for listening to October Surprise.